Welcome to Brief Encounters. I'm Don Reznikoff. I'm associated with the DC Bar Communities, uh, Antitrust and Consumer, also DC Affairs. Also, I'm associated with the DC Consumer Rights Coalition. Bert Farr, who is the speaker for today, is a retired attorney and the founder and the former president of the American Antitrust Institute, in which uh, I've also been involved. Bert was the CEO of the former Washington-based Mellart Jewelers retail chain. He's a former member of the local and national ACLU boards, and now, among other activities, he follows gun control issues as a member of the board of the Violence Policy Center. Now, Bert and I have spoken in preparation for the session, of course, and my understanding of an outline of where we're going to go is that Bert can briefly give us some background and analysis leading up to the Supreme Court's recent Bruin decision on gun control rights. In addition, he will go on to talk about the current implications, which I think you'll find quite interesting. And those include a fairly minimal new federal law, a new New York state law passed following the Supreme Court decision, which makes an effort to retain some state control over gun rights. And also a very interesting implication goes to rights of private citizens who may wish to have guns not on their uh, private property. And with that uh, introduction, I'll turn over to uh, Bert to start off uh, with the background to the Bruin case. Thank you, uh, Don. Good to be with you this morning. Well, let's start with the Second Amendment itself. Uh, what it says, everybody knows, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, up until the Heller decision in 2008, these two clauses, the prefatory clause about the militia, which deals with a public interest in public defense, and the operative clause dealing with the individual right, were in a gunfight that lasted right up until the uh, Heller decision. At that point, I would say that uh, something Chief Justice Warren Burger said on television in 1991, stood for the general understanding of uh, lawyers and the public. He said, um, the claim of an individual right to own guns was, quote, one of the greatest pieces of fraud by special interest groups that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Well, the Supreme Court in uh, 2008 in Heller uh, disagreed. And again, two years later in McDonald versus Chicago, the Supreme Court upheld everything in the Heller case and added to it that the 14th Amendment brought the Second Amendment into bearing on state law as well and city law. So the rule was that individual right to keeping a handgun at home for self-defense is a constitutional right. Now, other than the McDonald case, since Heller, about 150 subsequent lower court cases upheld regulations under what I call the Scalia escape hatch. And this was some language deep down in the middle of a very long uh, opinion by Scalia that said things like, uh, well, of course, sensitive places can be off limits to guns. So there, there was some language there that was utilized in order to keep gun regulation 
uh, alive. That pretty well takes us up, Don, to the Bruin case. Should we move on to that now? Please do. Okay. For background on this very recent case uh, in June, the um, states in various ways regulate the open and concealed carry of guns. Remember, the keeping of guns was the basic Heller decision, keeping in the home. The bearing of arms, which has been taken to mean carrying it outside of the home, uh, has been separately dealt with and, and wasn't really clarified until the Bruin decision. Six states, including uh, New York, which was the case involving Bruin, it was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. New York State was one of six that had what's known as a May issue permit regime. Other states uh, were either shell issue, meaning that if uh, certain boxes were checked off, objective conditions for being granted a permit. If those boxes were checked off, there was no subjective activity on the state part and the permit had to be issued. Constitutional carry states don't uh, require any permitting for the carrying of concealed weapons. And there are something like 23 states in that category. Most of the middle of America, in fact, does not require permitting. So, the uh, New York state law was a little bit different in that it gave the state some subjective opportunity to reject the permit, and they often did. The permit applicant would have to show more than a generalized need or desire for a gun for self-protection. You couldn't say, hey, I got to go to work in the evening in New York by subway, or uh, the crowds are so dense that I'm always at risk and I need to carry a gun. That would fly in the shell issue states probably, but not in the may issue states, or at least it was a, a subjective decision. In a six to three decision with the majority by uh, Clarence Thomas, it was held that the New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. Now, the various courts of appeals that had looked at this treated it under a methodology called a two-step framework. Uh, this sounds very procedural, but it really gets to the heart of what's going on. The Supreme Court now says that two steps are not necessary, only one step. In the two-step framework, the first step was to take a look at the original text and understand what it meant when it was written, which was when we adopted the Constitution. Uh, and if, if there was any chance that the right to carry the uh, weapon was in question, then a second step would be adopted. And that second step was what you would call intermediate scrutiny. It would allow a kind of a balancing and a, and a concern for what the consequences of a decision by the court might be. The holding though said that Supreme Court can't do the balancing. That balancing was done by the people, name them, <laughs> when the second amendment was ratified. Who were those people? And what were they 
balancing. Well, you have to look at history. That's what the Supreme Court said. And they went through a great deal of history in Thomas's opinion, and also a great deal of counter history in Breyer's opinion, which sort of replicates what happened in the Heller case. And the conclusion here was, perhaps not surprisingly, that uh, there, there's not enough history to support New York's, uh, by the way, almost ancient law, the Sullivan Law, that the court characterized as effectively declaring that the island of Manhattan is a sensitive place. Okay, so you're probably asking yourself, what is a sensitive place? Well, um, the best we learn from the decision is that a sensitive place is to be determined by analogy to generally accepted sensitive places, such as legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses. But if you carry it, that category to all places of public congregation that are not isolated from law enforcement, that would carry the analogy too far. And uh, so that's, you can't say that the whole island of Manhattan is a sensitive place. Now, what can you say? Well, uh, let's, let's look a little bit more at these opinions. Justice Alito, said that, uh, well, basically he dismissed the dissent as being nothing more than a re-argument of the Heller case. But he went on and he said that a means end analysis, which Breyer and the dissidents were asking for, places no firm limits on the ability of judges to sustain any law restricting the possession or use of a gun. Now, in the very important concurrence by Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts, they say, let's focus on what the decision does not do. The decision does not affect shell issue regimes. And in such regimes, they point out, you could have licensing, you could have fingerprinting, you could have background checks, you could have mental health records checks, you could have training in firearms handling and in laws regarding the use of force. All this is already there in the shell issue states. And that's not what they say is at stake here. Properly defined, the Second Amendment allows a variety of gun regulations. That's a very positive spin on this decision. It's interesting because Kavanaugh and Roberts constitute two votes and the dissidents, the liberals constitute three. That means there would be five votes today, probably, maybe, or maybe not for a, a regulation that's consistent with the current shell issue standards. Now, Amy Coney Barrett raises a different kind of question in her concurrence. She's concerned about the methodology questions about the future use of history. For example, how would post-ratification history bear on the original meaning of the constitution? Well, she warns, don't give post-ratification history more weight than it can rightly bear. I'm quoting that because that's the guidance that uh, she's giving us. So all you have to do is predict what weight can predictably be borne by history. Okay, the dissent is a long one by Stephen Breyer uh, with Sotomayor and Kagan on board. They say that it's wrong to focus nearly exclusively on history because that means ignoring governmental interests. 
balancing the lawful use of guns against the danger of firearms is primarily the responsibility of elected bodies, not judges. So they say the decision gives little guidance to lower courts and the history approach will permit judges to reach outcomes that they prefer, cloaking those outcomes in language of history. That's where we are, Don. Are you going to go on now to some of these implications, uh, federal law, state law, and uh, private rights? Okay. Well, federal law changed the next day after this decision was announced. For the first time in about 30 years, a gun control bill passed. It passed uh, the Senate by 65 to 33 with 15 Republicans, including GOP Senate leader Mitch McConnell, joining Democrats. On the House the next day, the House passed it 234 to 193 with 14 Republicans voting. In uh, both cases, the Democrats were united and the Republicans, frankly, were very few, but the law passed. Biden signed it. What the law did or does is to uh, enhance background checks for 18 to 21 year olds. All right, that category had been lacking in a very recent mass shooting. And so that's been cleaned up. So gun buyers uh, who are 18, 19, and 20 now have to wait a little longer. Uh, the law closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. It sets up grants for states to encourage red flag laws, and it funds school safety and youth mental health programs. I would say that this law is more important politically because it demonstrates that, yes, uh, you can get uh, a law through the Senate and the House and the White House on gun control. On the other hand, no, it's not going to be a terribly uh, effective law. So I think the law is more important politically than it is substantively. It will probably save some lives. That's good. I have to tell you, though, that uh, in 37 states, mostly in the middle of America, you have cities and counties, about a thousand of them, that have declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries, where they promise they will not enforce any new laws of the federal government. And uh, these states declared themselves uh, previously to the passage of this new law. So it's unclear uh, what future actions can be passed in Congress, or when, or for that matter, what the Supreme Court eventually will allow Congress to do or say that it can't do. And uh, who knows what that's going to depend on. So let's move on to state law, which is where a lot of the action is going to be. New York, I take it, has passed uh, a new law immediately. It did. It, it had to act quickly. And uh, what it did was to pass the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, and this, this is very interesting uh, because other states may follow it and it's probably going to raise some more constitutional type questions. This law requires that applicants for permits to carry firearms in public be of good moral character. Now, that is supposedly is an objective criterion. I don't know whether it'll stand up or, or not. The law defines an extensive list of sensitive locations where weapons are off limits for most permit holders. Applicants must participate in a firearm safety course. They have to undergo enhanced screening with in-person interviews 
and submit to reviews of their social media. Purchasing ammunition also triggers a background check. And the bill restricts the types of body armor that can be sold. Finally, it prohibits the use of firearms on private property unless the property owner allows it. I'm going to come back to that one. Let me say that I think a lot of the states, uh, other ones, uh, and especially those that are may issue states like Maryland, will adopt changes to their laws. There are going to be battles to see what gets through and what doesn't get through. Right now, there are a lot of battles over the red flag provisions. But most likely, uh, the new law of New York will serve as a model for some states. On the other hand, pro-gun states may choose to actually reduce their regulations. So as I say, there are 23 states that already have laws that allow concealed weapons without any permitting. I'm going to ask you a question that I gather with regard to the New York state statute, which you mentioned might be a model. There are critics who, who have argued that the laundry list of sensitive locations is so broad and the uh, amount of discretion left to state authorities is so great that the prospect of future challenges to the law are great. What do you think about that? I think it's great. In fact, in D.C. and Virginia, gun owners have already sued to be able to carry concealed handguns on the metro rail and the metro buses uh, because there's not a tradition, this is an argument, there's not a tradition of history of carrying firearms on public transportation vehicles. Think about it for a moment. Uh, there were no public transportation systems like we have today at the founding of the uh, nation. So lots, lots of litigation. Private property is an area that has not really appeared much in the conversation. I want to raise that now, and that'll be my final point. The New York law that I just mentioned says that owners may exclude people with concealed handguns. It actually goes further. It says that the presumption that the property owner wants to exclude is to be made. So if the um, property owner does not put out a sign that says guns welcome here, it would be presumed to be a, a felony violation to carry the gun onto that property. Uh, I can't predict whether this is going to be upheld uh, or whether other states will try to pass similar laws. But it raises another question, one that I think will interest the bar. Property owners already have the right, and under Anglo-American common law, trespass law, they have like always had the right to set conditions on which visitors are to be allowed onto the property. And we see examples of excluding those who are not dressed appropriately or who are drunk or they're carrying alcohol or carrying drugs or whatever. It's up to the property owner, as long as they're not discriminating in a way that is already illegal, to say who can come onto the property. So it would seem that if the owner of private property puts up a sign saying no guns, this is a voluntary activity, this would be enforceable. And enough businesses, if enough businesses, professions, nonprofits, private property owners were to post such signs and enforce them, it would be, practically speaking, so inconvenient to carry a gun out into public, either openly or concealed that people would be inclined to leave their guns at home, probably. I, for one, would like to see a national campaign 
in which uh, we, the people, do our own balancing uh, as to what we want to define as a sensitive place. And we supplement whatever restrictions the state places on public spaces so that employees, including executives and customers, are relieved, at least to some extent, of having to spend their time in places where there may be concealed weapons. So uh, Don, to pull it all together, I would say this. People say we have a gun culture in this country. It's true. It's also true that we have a strong gun regulation culture historically, and that under the current state of things, the gun culture seriously and dangerously outbalances the gun regulation culture, which uh, is, is by the polls unpopular, but in some places, uh, the Second Amendment uh, taken in its most extreme individualistic uh, interpretation is very strong. And we know that we have more, many more guns than we have people. So my point here is there's a, a third cultural aspect that we need to take into account. And that's the deeply embedded private property culture, which can be part of a retrenchment strategy aimed by we the people at a more acceptable balance between these two cultures. Well, those are very interesting and helpful comments, but I, I'm gonna emphasize the points you made about the rights of private property owners, because I think your comments there are interesting and novel. I haven't heard them from a lot of other sources. And so I, I take it your hope is that this is an idea that can catch on and spread in the future. I think it's going to be a very interesting situation because corporations have been getting into fights with very conservative politicians. Look at uh, Disney and the governor of Florida, for example. And there's a, a fear of, of so-called woke corporations. But I believe that it's in the self-interest of most businesses outside of the gun manufacturers to try to limit where their customers and their employees may stand in danger because of the presence of guns. And we'll see uh, whether there's enough pressure to build that and uh, whether this idea can go anywhere. Well, that, that'll be interesting to see. So I'll just say in closing, thank you very much on behalf of Brief Encounters. And that brings this session to an end. Thank you, Don.